welcome to your podcast for theater history too. My name is Jane Barnett and I am your host. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the English restoration. We're not going to talk that long because I have a bunch of other things that need to happen this weekend as well. And you probably also have plenty of things to do, including perhaps watching the Super Bowl or not. I don't know, but that's why I'm wearing red in honor of the Chiefs. Go Chiefs. Um, but in any case, a couple of housekeeping things before we get started. Number one, uh, if you haven't done so already, get get thee to the critic <laughs> because this is the time for evaluations and you have until 11.59 p.m. tonight, the 11th, which is Sunday. So I noticed that many of you have not yet done your evaluations. So I urge you to get on there and do those before the deadline passes. Um, after that point, there will be uh, time for feedback. So that's another thing to keep in mind. But right now we're in the evaluation stage. So I urge you, please do that for us. Uh, the second thing is that we have a reading that was originally scheduled um, in terms of its due date for Tuesday of this week. But I realized I hadn't made it very evident. I hadn't put it on perusal as an assignment yet. So I gave you a couple extra days until Thursday. That being said, I also have really important news about Thursday's class, which is the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, another reason to wear red. Um, but the 15th, we won't technically have class as um, in person. Um, I have a video I'm going to ask you to take a look at. Uh, if you're unable to do so, understand that this is an ungraded class, so nothing bad will happen to you. Um, but if you are able to do so, I think it will help you uh, to better understand the restoration. So uh, long story short, it's a video that you can get through Digital Theater Plus. And if you saw the audition notice come across your email from Marcus Potter, uh, there is a step-by-step -step, uh, instructions about how to get onto Digital Theater. In that case, it's for Indecent, uh, because that's what the audition notice is about. But you can also easily find the play that I'm asking you to take a look at, which is The School for Scandal. So I have a link to it on perusal. But again, you're going to have to go in through the KU library system because it's one of those videos that is uh, only accessible with your KU ID and password. Um, it is an hour and 45 or so, um, but it's a comedy. It's very funny. So if there's any way for you to get together with someone from class and get some popcorn and enjoy it together, please do. Um, and if, again, you're not able to do that, uh, no harm, no foul. Um, but what I do need you to do is to have the the essay that was originally supposed to be due on the 13th, which is Tuesday, I need you to have that annotated by Thursday. And we will start talking about that essay on Tuesday. Uh, finally, in case you're wondering, the reason we're not having class on Thursday is that um, the cast of Sweat and the dramaturg are going to uh, a little field trip. And it was the only time that we could find that uh, was doable for the entire cast, in part because I was able to finagle letting uh, the cast members who are in this class not have to come to history class. So how about that? Um, but that's what's going on. And that's why this is happening that way. It doesn't make too much of a difference for us because our class schedule, if you have looked ahead, you'll know that it says TBA. Oh. So one final thing on the housekeeping note, uh, you will be pleased to know that I have finally 
finally put up the list of suggested plays and playwrights for you for the final project, the WPA project. You will find that on the assignment uh, list on perusal. So go ahead and take a look at that if you can. Um, and there are tons of playwrights that are in there, lots and lots of choices available to you. But there's also a little list of different kinds of things to keep in mind in case you have somebody else that you want to propose, because I am open to those suggestions. I just have to approve it. Um, just a heads up that our next assignment that is in fact related to that final project is coming up on the 21st. So a week from Wednesday, uh, the 21st by 11.59 p.m. is when your WPA proposal is due. Uh, we'll go over that in, in greater detail, of course, in the next couple of days. And you'll be able to see that critic prompt uh, by Tuesday at class time when we will review it at the top of class. So um, after that point, after you've had a chance to take a look at the prompt, if you have questions, of course, let me know. But otherwise, let's jump into the very exciting topic of the English restoration. As we mentioned before, we will actually have a little bit more time to think about the English restoration through the lens of the play that we're using as our case study. Um, so we will return to this next week. But this week, we only have one day to kind of go through this history, which is why I'm hopeful that you'll get some use out of this podcast as a way of really setting you up for success. So I'm going to try to do the sharing of the screen. Uh, that is not necessarily something that I am used to doing here, but let's give it a try and hopefully it'll work just wonderfully. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Entire screen window. Interesting. Okay, we're going to do this. We'll see how this works. Um, yeah, it's not working at all. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, you know, why would I need that to work? It's so funny. Um, I actually, believe it or not, have the advanced form of this particular, um, this particular uh, recording studio, and it's just not letting me do what I need to do, which is kind of upsetting. All right, so we've got that. All right, here we go. Huh? No, not letting me do it. Cool, 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 cool. All right, well, I'll just talk to you, and hopefully it'll be fantastically interesting. Um, so really what I want to set the scene for is the fact that uh, the sort of re-entry. So let's, let's take it back just a little bit in terms of what's happening over in England. We've been talking about France, but that's purposeful because we're going to need to know some of the information from France in order to understand what happens in English restoration. So back in 1642, King Charles I is killed over in England. And then we have the takeover of Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans from 1642 to 1660. And during that period of time, those 18 years, any kind of theater any kind of theater was outlawed. You could actually go to jail. It could be something that you were trying to perform in the privacy of your own home, or rather the privacy of your own home. But if it was discovered by the Puritans who were in control, then you in fact would go to jail. So no theater allowed for 18 years in England, which is Suffice it to say, kind of intense and sad. Um, but in any case, uh, in 1660, we have the restoration, and it's called that because it's the restoring, the restoration of theater. And that's when Charles II, the son of Charles I, who has been 
uh, hiding out in exile over in France, comes back to England to claim the throne. And that's why this whole setup that we've had of France is so useful, because everything that Charles II wants to see on the stage comes from the fact that he's been watching theater over in France, which we know a lot about at this point. So, um, you know, what we focused on were, were the neoclassical rules. But what Charles II in his power is able to do is to take the parts of the French theater that he likes the most and keep those and then discard the parts that he doesn't like. And, you know, perhaps not surprisingly at all, the part that he doesn't like are the neoclassical ideals. <laughs> and the part that he really, 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 really likes is having women on stage. So we begin to see the entrance of the actress on the stage. Um, so, you know, arguably, that's a pretty exciting moment for for theater, for uh, gender history. It is the period of time where we get not only a very important and well-known and popular actress on the English stage, Nell Gwynn, but we also get perhaps the most popular and certainly the most prolific playwright of the Restoration period, maybe other than John Dryden, and that's Afra Ben. Now, you'll notice that Afra Ben is on the list. I purposely did not assign her so that somebody might could choose her for their WPA final project, um, but Afra Ben is very well known um, as the sort of uh, typically known as the first English female playwright. Um, and she writes many, many plays in, over the course of about 18 years. She writes about 18 plays, probably the most famous of which is The Rover. Um, she's known for comedy, but she also does tragedy. And she's, uh, like I said, really popular. So that's, that's, that's exciting. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about Charles II just for a moment. So I mentioned that he's been over in France and he's basically taken his fashion as well as aesthetic cues from the French royalty. So basically he tries to dress up as much like Louis XIV as he possibly can. And it's basically hilarious. So I'll show you a picture of that when we get to class because you have to see that. Um, but the reason that Nell Gwynn, of course, is so popular and so frequently cast as all sorts of uh, alluring characters on the stage is the fact that she is the king's mistress. So part of the reason that Charles II is so excited to have females on stage is that it allows him to satisfy his voyeurism. Um, because this is also a period of time where the costumes are evocative, let us say. And uh, that's something that's quite pleasing to Charles II, um, and perhaps many, many other people as well. Um, and it's also a period of time where we start to see uh, Breach's roles begin to emerge, although they'll get much more uh, intense, intensified in the 19th century. But that being said, it's an exciting period. Um, and we start to see uh, all sorts of details that we are now capable of knowing. Again, historiography, how do we know what we know? In part because of a particular diarist by the name of Samuel Pepys. And by the way, I don't know if it's still active because, you know, it's now a hellscape. But back in the day when Twitter was Twitter and not whatever it is now, there was an account 
that was dedicated to the diaries of Sam Samuel Pepys from the Restoration period. And I used to follow that account and it was hilarious because it would have some actual quotation from the 1660s to the 1700s and so on um, that was from his diaries. And what's so cool about his diaries is that he wrote about doing all sorts of things. He was very, very active in the social circles, but um, most of what he was doing socially was going to see plays. And so he would talk without any hairs on his tongue, so to speak, about what he thought about these plays. And he liked some of them. He hated others. But he was, what is the word, uh, sassy. He was very sassy. And so, you know, if you're like me, you would very much enjoy reading the caliber of his reviews from the period. So I highly recommend it. You can catch most of those at the Internet Archive and Hatha Trust, a bunch of different websites, if you just type in Samuel Peeps. And that is Samuel, of course. The last name Peeps is P-E-P-Y-S. Something that you would know if I could actually share the screen. But details. So. Um, I want to talk to y'all about a couple of um, rules that did start to come into play um, starting in 1737. So basically, once we have 1660 to 1700s or basically up to 1737, what you have is just a proliferation and excitement of having the ability to stage plays again. And as I said, also especially exciting because now women are able to play female roles. What a concept. And you're having these, um, you know, tete-a-tetes uh, between men and women on stage. It's quite exhilarating, so to speak. But, you know, laws are going to law. And by the time we get to 1737, there's a prime minister by the name of Sir Robert Walpole. And he is, unfortunately, basically um, annoying. <laughs> He basically uh, finds that, uh, well, let me back up. The reason that this all happens is also connected to theater. So on the Haymarket stage, there are a couple of stages I'm going to reference, but we'll see pictures of them in class, so worry not. But on the Haymarket stage, um, there was a, a satire of Sir Robert Walpole, and basically, uh, <laughs> it was performed for the king at the time, who was George I. So George I reigned from 1714 to 1727 or so. Um, and during that period, uh, his prime minister was mocked mercilessly on the stage. And because of that, this prime minister was able to uh, rush a licensing act through the parliament. So this particular law uh, made it so that the Lord Chamberlain, which is an office within the royal household, the Lord Chamberlain would be the person who would authorize all plays going forward. Um, any plays that is that were for gain, hire, or reward. In other words, if you weren't doing it for charity, then it had to first be approved by the Lord Chamberlain's office as part of the royal um, household. And this particular law was in effect until, if I'm not mistaken, like 1968 or something like that. It's It was in, in effect for centuries. And that's important for a bunch of reasons, uh, not the least of which is the fact that we now have an incredible record of all the plays that would have been done for gain, hire, or reward. 
That being said, of course, this is a form of prior censorship. It's the notion that someone in the, the monarchy has the ability to decide whether or not a play based on the script alone is appropriate, right? And this was a way, again, for this prime minister, Sir Robert Walpole, to um, somehow assuage his, his embarrassment, right? Um, and so that was... That was frustrating, but it was also, again, something that we can look back on with some gratitude because of that, that record. Now, as you might imagine, and as I've already hinted, there are some loopholes in the Licensing Act, namely if you do it for free, right? So if you are doing any kind of performance for free, then you could potentially get work around it. And so what you found were people who were actually um, making theater at, at for-profit kinds of venues, but they would do interesting workarounds such as, oh, the performance is free, but you have to buy some chocolate in order to get in the door. <laughs> and we see things like this um, even today, right? There'll be plays that are free if you have a donation for, you know, uh, for example, if someone is doing a food drive or something, bring a can of food as a way of getting in the door. So you're not paying money, but you're also not getting in exactly completely free. But these were um, other kinds of loopholes uh, that that were perhaps for our perspective, really obvious, but it worked. And they were able to continue to do plays for free as long as you bought chocolate or uh, tea or something like that. Now, the other way that they got around this was to do something that was not a regular drama. So what does this mean? It basically means that musical theater and other kinds of dance-based theater starts to proliferate. And that's exciting as well. Um, so we start to see that uh, different kinds of theater is um, happening, and that's exciting. Um, we also see that uh, by 1766, the Haymarket, which had typically been a theater that was popular in the summer, um, was uh, now able to do almost entirely the non-regular plays. So musicals, burlesques, that kind of thing. Um, and the Haymarket becomes a, a real sort of mm, place where those kinds of musicals and dance-based theater uh, grows until about 1843. And finally, uh, by 1788, legitimate theater, which is to say regular drama, which is to say non-musical theater, is allowed to be done without having the approval, the prior approval of the Lord Chamberlain, by 1788, that's allowed in the provinces, just not obviously in London or anywhere that's a uh, part of the monarchy's uh, centralized control. So that's exciting. And you might be wondering, what are some of these minor forms that got around the, the Licensing Act? And so a couple of those forms you actually probably are familiar with, especially if you do musical theater. We'll start with one called pantomime. And the pantomime in British parlance is really, at least at this period in the 18th century, is considered to be an afterpiece, right? And so this is, uh, these are plays that are 
fantastical and they have to do with Harlequin. Um, Harlequin, who is an English adaptation of Arlecchino from the Commedia dell'arte. But Harlequin in this case has a magic wand and he creates spectacle. And what you see with pantomime is a con con conglomeration of figures from classical mythology with Commedia dell'arte. So these are comic scenes um, that are typically uh, enacted silently, but then uh, there'll be moments where uh, of something serious that's happening. And for that, there would be a song that's, you know, uh, that somebody sings. Um, and by 1723, pantomimes were already the most popular style in England. So that becomes a form and that was never covered by the licensing act because it wasn't considered regular drama. So that kind of theater continues to proliferate. But then there's also ballad opera. And you probably know a little bit about ballad opera because the Beggar's Opera of 1728 by John Gay is the first example of a ballad opera. And of course, this is, in some cases, some people will say that this is really the germ or the sort of beginning of contemporary musical theater, right? Because what we have in ballad opera is a combination of spoken dialogue and lyrics that are set to popular music of the time. So if you think about that and translate it into 2024, right, it could be, oh, wow, here we have a sort of breakout song, you know, to Beyonce or some other, you know, Taylor Swift or something like that. Um, whatever is most popular at the time, uh, that music was used as uh, the background, the sort of melody for the lyrics that would be sung. But these ballad operas, especially the beggar's opera, were typically satirical, satirical of, of politics and of opera. So, of course, and hopefully you already know this, opera has been going on, but it's typically considered to be the purview of music. Even today, we can see that, right? Because we've got Sweeney Todd um, coming from the School of Music, as much as it is a collaboration with the Department of Theater and Dance, it's really sort of sponsored by the School of Music uh, on paper. Although, as we all know, uh, it's definitely something that takes labor from, from our department as well. The final form, so we have pantomime, we have ballad opera, and the third and final form that's a minor form of this period that's quite popular is burlesque. And I mentioned it before. I want to be clear, when we hear burlesque today, we tend to think of, you know, something that has to do with uh, the removal of clothes um, or some kind of, you know, sexy dance. Uh, this is not that. <laughs> this is a satirical kind of musical dance piece. Uh, without singing. So this is something where we're going to see um, lines that are spoken and movement that is, uh, you know, uh, captivating, but not sexual. The purpose of the burlesque at this period in the 18th century, so the 1700s in England, is to be satirical of the government of religion and so on and so forth. In fact, that's what's so cool about the theater during this period. When we talk about the Restoration, we're talking about England. Not surprisingly, because Charles II is so inspired by, by, by France, if you think about 
Moliere and you think about Tartuffe, even though it wasn't really allowed to be produced, you know, right away, um, that is the kind of thing that someone like Charles II would be very intrigued by. And sure enough, what we start to see is that comedy becomes the major form in England. So we have a couple of playwrights. We've got William Weisherly, who wrote The Country Wife in 1675. Um, it is uh, raucous comedy, quite fun if you get a chance to take a look. Um, there's also William Congreve, who's probably most well-known play is The Way of the World in 1700. Um, also super fun. Um, and then the playwright that I'm asking you to take a look at for the 15th, if you can, is Sir Richard Steele. And, you know, I mentioned The School for Scandal, but also he has another play, 1722, known as The Conscious Lovers. And all three of these playwrights, Wysherley, Congreve, and Steele, are trafficking in a similar kind of comedy, namely a comedy that basically um, puts front and center all sorts of machinations and scandals and sexualities and different kinds of, um, you know, uh, bad, bad people. And we tend to have names of the characters that tell us exactly what we need to know. So for example, in the School for Scandal, you'll have a character named Snake, and you immediately know what to expect from him and so on. So there's a lot more to talk about. And uh, we will pick up where I have left off, at least for now. But hopefully this starts to get you excited about the period that we're now sort of merging into. Um, and if you are a fan of comedy, and who isn't, um, I think you'll really enjoy the drama of this period. That being said, the play that we're reading for um, the case study, as I have mentioned in class, and I even put it on perusal as a reminder, I've never read. So we'll be reading that together. It's a Mary Picks play. So uh, hopefully it's good. We'll find out. Um, but otherwise, I will see you on Tuesday. And again, don't forget to do your evaluations. Please, please, please go to Critic. Have fun on Critic. Get it done before or after the Super Bowl. All right. That's it for now. I will see you in class on Tuesday. And once again, enjoy your day away from school or at least away from history class on Thursday the 15th while the cast of Sweat and I go on a field trip. Take care.